Chapter 5 of The Heart of Hyacinth by Anoto Watana Near the temple of Ganji, there is one huge rock where the Data lords in the feudal days were wont to gather yearly, attended by musicians and seeking recreation in gay amusements. It is of enormous size, and when the sun's rays beat upon its white surface, it shines like white polished glass. Flat, embedded in the soil, there is, however, a part of the rock which rises many feet above the level, its outjutting point resembling the head of some giant sea monster. Under this jutting head, a natural cave has been formed. Here, on a summer day, two children are playing together. Far below them, the bay of Matsushima spread out its insistent beauty. Moored to the beach, a few cho below them, was their miniature raft sampan, an old weather-beaten boat in which they had made their pilgrimage from the village. Behind them were the tombs and the eastern hills. The sunlight, slanting upon them, was no less golden than these summer foothills of the mountains beyond. Bareheaded and bare-legged the children were, the sandals upon their feet wet, showing how they had paddled in the bay. The boy, a lad of possibly fifteen years, was stretched full length under the shadow of the rock, only his sandaled feet projecting into the sunlight, which he hoped would dry them. His elbows were in the sand, his chin resting upon one arm. He was reading from a very much worn and ragged book, the leaves of which he turned with the utmost care and tenderness. The little girl had gradually come from the rock's shadow, and now squatted at his feet. The sun fell upon her. She was a diminutive, odd little mite. Her hair, a dark shining brown, had been carefully knotted up into a little chignon at the top of her head, but, being wayward by nature, it had escaped the most persistent brushing and the severe pins which held it. It clung around her ears and little neck in soft, damp curls. Her face and hands were russet, sunburned, and freckled. Her eyes were large and grey, shading towards blue. She wore but one garment, a little red, ragged kimono, very much frayed at the ends, and soaked from her late paddling. And like the average Japanese child, the little girl was restless and lacked all sense of repose, an inherent instinct with Japanese children. Though the boy had constituted her his audience and was reading aloud to her, she apparently had heard no word of what he had been reading. Having wriggled her way beyond the reach of his hand, she now looked about her for new means of engaging her active little mind. This she discovered in some stalks of grass. Having selected the stiffest blade she could find, she stealthily crept back to the feet of the boy, and first tickled, then pricked his feet with the grass. The natural result followed. The boy's droning, monotonous voice in reading changed to a sudden sharp grunt, and he threw up his heels, whereat the little girl burst into a wild, elfish peal of laughter. At the same time she renewed her jabs at the boy's protesting feet. Kamazawa, still agitating his heels, closed the book with care, placed it in safety in the sleeve of his hakama, and swung upward, drawing his heels under him beyond the reach of his naughty tormentor. With assumed gravity he regarded the small rogue before him. "'Something bidden you, yes?' she inquired keeping her distance from him, and hugging her knees up to her chin. Comer nodded silently. What? she inquired. What was that bitten you, Comer? Nut, said the boy briefly. Nut? 
she crept a few paces nearer to him and peered into his face. Yes, Nat, he repeated. Bad devil, Nat. The expression on the little girl's face was involved. How was it possible for anyone ever to know just what Kamazawa meant when his face was so grave and smileless? She had an odd little trick of glancing up at one sideways under her eyelashes. She peeped up at Comer now for some time in this manner. Her mirth had changed to a matter of speculation. Did or did not Comer know what had bitten him? He had said it was a gnat. Her intelligence was not sufficiently developed to include the possibility that he might have meant her for the gnat. She ventured, Did you see that gnat bite you? Yes, twice. Her eyes became wide. Where is it gone? She inquired breathlessly. Still there, was his reply. Where? She started, actually frightened. Coma's voice and air of mystery began to work upon her active imagination. What was a gnat, anyway? And if one had actually bitten Komazawa, might it not also bite her? By this time she had entirely forgotten her own attacks with the grass blade. She was close to Coma now, her hands upon his arm, her upraised eyes searching his face. What is a gnat, Komazawa? Bad little insect. Oh, does it bite? Yes. Did it also bite you? Three times. Oh! A palpitating pause, then. Will it bite me, too? Maybe. She crept completely into his arms, shielding herself with his sleeves. Where is it? That bad gnat. Here! He pointed at her with an index finger. Here! She gave a little scream. On my face! She was a small bundle of pricked nerves, frightened at a shadow of her own making. Kamazawa relented pressed her little fluttering face against his own. There, foolish one! No, there is nothing on your face. You are the gnat I meant. Me? She drew back a pace. But I am not an insect. Little bit like one, said Comer, a smile of sunshine replacing his affected gravity a moment since. His small companion sat up stiffly, half indignant, half curious. How am I like unto an insect gnat? That jumps, this way, that, every way. So you do so. Can't sit still, listen to beautiful stories. I don't like those kind stories. Like better stories about ghosts and, oh, you always get afraid of such stories, screaming like seagull. Yes, but all the same, I like to do that. Like to hear such stories. Like also get frightened and scream. Nut also bites, bites foot, same as you do. That don't hurt, she said, her eyes askance. Then repeating her words questioningly. That don't hurt? Oh, yes, it does, certainly. What do you suppose I got to keep my feet under me now for? Her little bosom heaved. Let me see those foots, Kamazawa. Too sore. Oh, Kamazawa! Her eyes were beginning to fill. He thrust his two feet out quickly. No, no, they are all right. Her face was aglow again in an instant. Oh, I love you, my coma, she said. I only pretend hurt your honorable foots. That's right. Now you fix your hands so he illustrated, doubling his own hands into fists, then doubling hers also. That's right, make hand good and hard. So, now you hit hard against those feet. So, he brought her little closed fist down hard with his own hand on his offending foot. The little girl became pale. Her lips quivered. She began to sob. Comer lifted her in his arms, jumped her on his shoulder, and carried her down to the beach, 
soothing her as he walked. That's just little punishment for me, punishment for teasing little sister, said Coma, laughing quietly. That don't hurt. You going to laugh soon? You just little nut. That's so? You bite just little bit. I am big dog. I bite dog. He set her in the boat. Such a foolish little nut, he said. Always cry, always laugh. Like these waters. Sometimes jump. Sometimes lie still. Standing in the boat, he pushed it out into the bay with the large pole, which served as a sort of paddling oar. He smiled back over his shoulder at her. Oh, the wind go blowing us home so quick. Now you smile once more. Good. Sun come up again. He had been speaking to her in English, idiomatic but clear. Now he broke into Japanese song. His voice was round and large, full and sweet for one so young. It seemed to ring out across the bay and float back to them from the echoing hills. Chapter 6 Alas, said Madame Ai as she brushed with long hopeless strokes the rippling hair of little Hyacinth. Alas, no use to keep you nice. Look at those hands, so brown like little boys, and that neck and face. Hyacinth sat upon the weekly chair of torture. Her little russet face had been scrubbed till it shone. Her hair was being brushed uncomfortably smooth with water to prepare it for being twisted up in a pyramid on her head. Had she been a properly regulated Japanese child, one such hairdressing a month would have sufficed. But as a rule, she had scarcely escaped under the painstaking hands of Aoi before she managed to shake down or at least loosen the beautiful glossy coiffure upon her head. Cleaning day, Hyacinth dreaded. Okuma had taught her to swim in a bay, like a veritable little duck. It is sad to relate that the little girl despised water which was thrown upon her for the purpose of removing that dirt. The inevitable portion of a child who plays continually in the open and burrows in beach sand. So now, restless, rebellious, and miserable, anything but the usual passive little Japanese girl, she squirmed under the hands of Aoi. The day was Sunday. A red-letter day for Aoi. The mission-house on the hill opened its doors to its tiny congregation upon this day, hence Aoi prepared her little family against this weekly event, and poor Hyacinth was the chief subject of torture. Coma's hair grew in a short, smooth mass, which required no brushing or twisting. Also, he had reached an age when he had wholly graduated from his mother's hands, and was confident to effect his own toilet but he was forced to sit in the chamber of horrors during the time that his sister was undergoing the weekly operation, since, were his presence removed, it would have been impossible to manage or control the restless child. There! exclaimed Aoi, as she placed the last pin in the child's head. Now that is fine! Been good child today! Hyacinth slid down from the small stool, lingered in discontent on the floor a moment, then with an expression of childish resignation, rose to her feet, and stood silently awaiting further operations upon her. Aoi lightly wafted a little powder towards her face and neck, then removed it with a soft cloth. The tanned skin appeared whitened and softened. Then she dressed her little charge in a fresh crepe kimono, a red-flowered kimono it was, tied a purple obi about it with a huge bow behind, placed a flower ornament in the side of her hair, and Hyacinth's toilet was completed. Her appearance did credit to the labour of Aoi. She seemed such a bewitching, quaint little figure. Her face, 
piquantly pretty, her hair shining, a red flower ornament matching her little red cheeks and lips. A moment later, too, the discontent and restlessness had quite fled from her face, but coma had seized her the instant of her release and given her an enormous hug to the palpitating anxiety of Aoi, who besought him to be careful not to disturb the elegance of her hair and gown. Now, she told him, go sit at the door, like good children. Keep very still. Soon your mother will also be ready. Aoi expended less pains upon her own person. Her hair erection needed no redressing. She changed her cotton kimono for a very elegant silken one, powdered her face lightly in a trice, and a moment later was at the door, anxiously looking about for the children. She was still a young woman, so pretty that it was hard to believe her the mother of a boy of sixteen. Her figure was slight and girlish, her face unmarked by any trace of age, save that the eyes were sad and anxious, and the lips had a tendency to quiver pathetically. She fluttered down the little garden path, looking right and left for the truants. She discovered them bending over the great well in the garden. See, said little Hyacinth, there's a big cherry tree in well, and a little girl under it also. I looked at the reflection, lingered a moment, smiling pensively at the three faces in the water, then drew them away. Come, she said. Listen, those temple bells already are beginning to ring. We shall be late and disgrace his excellency. She opened a large paper parasol, and with Comer holding her sleeve on one side and Hyacinth on the other, they tripped up the hill to the little mission church. They were late, as usual, to the extreme humiliation of Aoi, who shrank to the most obscure corner possible in the church. She gave one anxious, fluttering glance about her, shook her head at the restless Hyacinth, then very simply and naturally lifted her little thin voice in singing with the rest of the strange congregation. The old missionary at his stand, who had seen her entrance, beamed benignly upon her from over his spectacles. Though so old, his voice could be heard loud and clear, leading his little flock in the hymn of invocation. The service was exceedingly simple. A reading from a Japanese translation of the Bible, a few announcements by the old pastor, then an address by a thin, curious-looking stranger, the new assistant of the missionary. After that followed the offerings, to which everyone in the church contributed, even the children, then a sweet hymn, a solemn word of benediction, and church was over. How strangely like the church in his own home in faraway England was this little mission house to the old minister. These gentle people had laboured to erect this house on the plan he had described to them. They lifted up the same voices in melodious hymns of praise to the same Creator. Their eyes looked up to their leader with the same profound devotion. Yes, surely he had done right in a desertion of that small pastorate in England which a hundred ministers could fill. Here lay his true work, the fruits of his labours. This had become his home. So down the aisle he went, followed by his new assistant, with a word and a smile and a hearty grip of the hand to each and all of his little band. I stood in the little pew, her face turned towards him, wistfully expectant. Even the restless Hyacinth peered at him with sombre, quieted gaze. Ah, he said, Mrs. Montrose and Como, how is my little girl? And he patted Hyacinth upon the head. The new minister stared with some surprise at the two children, then looked questioningly at the old missionary. He was listening attentively, with old-fashioned courtesy to the words of the anxious Aoi.
Is it not yet time, Excellency? The boy is growing beyond me. What is to be done? I have taught him all the words I myself know of the English language, but alas, I am very ignorant, and my tongue trips and halts. The missionary glanced gravely and thoughtfully at Coma, who was engaged in whispering to the inquisitive Hyacinth. The latter was intently engrossed in regarding the pale and anemic face of the new minister. He seems such a boy, such a child, said the old missionary. I think you have done well by him, and it certainly was wise to keep him from the schools in Sendai. Ah, Excellency, said I, he merely looks like a child. He is indeed much older than he appears. Was he not always old for his age? It is merely his constant association with the tiny one which causes him to appear so young. Well, said the missionary, we must think about it. I will talk it over with Mr. Blount. He indicated his assistant, who bowed quietly. Aoi appeared troubled. Excellency, she said, it was the will of his august father that he should see something of the world when he should have attained to years of madness. The missionary nodded thoughtfully. I will give you my opinion tomorrow. Tomorrow evening, he said. The matter requires serious reflection. Thank you, she murmured gratefully. You are so good, the gods will bless you. Thus, even within the house of the new religion, poor Ai let slip from her lips that almost unconscious faith in the gods of her childhood.